You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. All right, here we go with part two. Uh, so I'm, I'm joined here with uh, Ross Nockby and Dr. BJ Smith, uh, sports medicine physician at the Rothman Institute and currently sees patients uh, at Limerick, Brimar, and Wynwood locations. He graduated from Penn State University, the Penn State University, <laughs> completed medical school at Jefferson Medical College. After completing his residency in family medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, he completed a sports medicine fellowship at the HealthPlex Sports Medicine of Crozier Keystone Health System. Dr. Smith brings a total body approach to his treatment of athletes and non-athletes alike. He treats all types of musculoskeletal and orthopedic injuries, from sprains and strains to fractures, pediatric issues uh, to arthritis. Dr. Smith also treats sports-related concussions using the latest techniques, including integrative and complementary methods. I'm Ross Nockby, doctor of physical therapy at Ivy Rehab in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Ross graduated from the University of Rochester with a degree in brain and cognitive science and went on to Northwestern University where he graduated with his doctorate in physical therapy. Ross is McKenzie method trained and is trained in FMS or functional movement screening as well as SFMA uh, or selective functional movement assessment. He is a certified strength conditioning coach as well. He is experienced in treating all orthopedic and sports uh, sports medicine conditions, both operative and non-operative. All right, let's get into it. PRP. Take it away. What is PRP? Okay. So the from the very basics, uh, and then we'll expand on, PRP uh, usually stands for platelet-rich plasma. Uh, it's a type of regenerative injection uh, therapy that we will often use in sports medicine. PRP, interestingly, first started with like orthodontists and periodontists trying to get like chronic gum disease to heal is how it very first started. And it's sort of a bit of an offshoot of prolotherapy, which has uh, been around since like the 50s. Yeah. Um, but uh, PRP is like sort of the newer version and it works definitely better than, than the prolotherapy. But prolotherapy still has a role. But anyway, regardless, basically what you're trying to do is there's a lot of chronic tendon damage and ligament damage that just can be injured, but then just doesn't heal, kind of peters out. So particularly, and particularly areas that don't have a very good blood supply. So Achilles tendon lateral epicondylitis or common extensor tendon, uh, patellar tendon, uh, plantar fascia, things like that, where like sometimes these injuries can heal on their own if it's the tendonitis or strain or partial tear, and sometimes they don't. And so if there's chronic overuse, chronic strain, there's like a little bit of wear and tear and a normal healthy tendon looks kind of like uncooked spaghetti, kind of nice parallel fibers. And then a chronic wear and tear, you get the sort of jumbled up cooked spaghetti mixed in with the cooked, with the uncooked. So it gets kind of like all gnarly and beat up. And so you, we've been trying, so the tennis elbow, the jumper's knee, Achilles, these things that like would just take forever to heal. Um, and you could try PT. And a lot of times you can, like acute versions, they will heal fine. Sometimes we do steroid chats, sometimes we do PT. So basically it's like the ones where it's not really getting better with the standard therapy. So you've tried the home exercise, you've tried physical therapy, you've tried eccentric strengthening, you've tried like boots or bracing or things like that, injections or maybe, or medicines of or something at least. And so PRP is basically trying to hijack your build, your body's own ability to heal. So, um, you know, 
pre-COVID when I didn't have to wear a mask as much and I actually shaved so I'd look better, but now I hide it with a mask. I think you look great. Thanks. But uh, so like, you know, you cut yourself shaving, right? You bleed a little bit, platelets come to the area. The platelets uh, see the damage in the endothelium and they degranulate. So the platelets are all parts of a much bigger cell, megakaryocytes, that then breaks apart. So the platelets don't have a nucleus anymore. They don't have like all the other stuff in there. They're like parts of a bigger cell. And so they come to the area and they will activate and they'll release different granules that then sort of release a whole cascade of effects down the road. So they're kind of like the bricks in a wall that your body will put up to stop the bleeding. So, but to do that, like you you don't just have the bricks, you also have the mortar to help hold them together. So, and also you need things to heal. So like the platelets will release their granules, they'll release different uh, chemicals and different uh, sort of neurotransmitters and different cytokines to sort of signal the whole healing path. So part of it is you want to increase blood flow to the area that's damaged because you want to get new blood cells in there. You want to get white blood cells in there and maybe clean up any debris that's left over from like if a bacteria gets in, you need some new endothelial cells to go in. You need new um, fibroblasts to go in to lay down new collagen. You need the endothelial cells to fix the vessel um, and basically need to kind of the body do its thing to heal. Eventually cut heals up and it grows closed and you, you're not, soon next thing you know, you don't see it anymore. You can't even tell it was there. So basically that is in all of us, like our own healing potential. So if you have a tendon, we can try to sort of kickstart it with our own healing potential. So first started by using autologous blood. So I draw like your blood and then, you know, if I'm going to say, I'm going to inject your uh, tennis elbow or your Achilles tendon, I can only get a couple cc's of blood in there or a couple cc's of any volume of sure. fluid in there. So in the blood, you know, you've got red blood cells, you've got just plasma, you've got white blood cells, you've got platelets, you've got growth factors, you've got proteins, you got all kinds of different stuff. But like of all the stuff that's in the blood, really only a small portion of it is like the important stuff involved in healing. So if I can only get three cc's of a fluid in there, if I put, take just three cc's of straight blood, and actually usually it's actually even a little less because you'd mix it with a lidocaine so it doesn't hurt like crazy, um, then there's only so many platelets in there. So they figured out, okay, well, if we draw your blood and spin it in a centrifuge, then you concentrate the red blood cells and you kind of get rid of those because we don't really need those. And then you sort of like siphon off just the empty plasma at the top. You take that sort of middle layer or like what we call the buffy coat. Uh, but basically you're looking at some white blood cells and that's a whole other conversation about like how many and what type of blood white blood cells. But just to keep it basic, white blood cells can be helpful. Uh, the platelets, growth factors, proteins, things like that. So with PRP, I can draw like 30 cc's of blood and concentrate it down to about three cc's. So I'm basically getting 10 times the healing potential of like just the three cc's of straight blood. And then I inject it to where I want it to go to try and stimulate healing. So some of the earliest, earliest uses were like gum disease and periodontis and dental things. Um, but from a sports medicine standpoint, one of the things that first started coming out with was a lot of these like tendinopathies that we couldn't treat very well. So tennis elbow was a big one. And some of the early studies of tennis elbow showed that it worked pretty well for it. But like with a lot of things, you know, sometimes when you find a good treatment, you're like, well, what else can I use this on? And you start using it on all kinds of different things. And some of it works great and some of it not so much. Personally, I do like PRP. I am a proponent. I do it myself. I uh, perform it on patients. I think it can be very helpful for many things. That being said, sometimes it's a sort of a treatment in search of a disease. So like people start using it for everything. And yeah, for some things it doesn't work as well. And Part of the problem with PRP is it's your blood. So Ross, I draw your blood, I spin it, and I inject it back in. So if we think of things from a financial standpoint, 
it's your blood. There's like a kit used for the centrifuge and a needle. And that's about it. So there's no drug. Um, there's no, it's not a joint replacement where like, you know, uh, Zimmer is going to make a chunk of money off the sale of the, the implant or a uh, drug that, you know, Merck is going to make money off of, you know, uh, like, or Pfizer gets a chunk of Celebrex or whatever. So like, there's not a ton of outside money came from it. So there's not a ton of then money to go into it to fund further research to then prove it. So a lot of the studies, at least early on, were like uh, 10 patients with this, 20 patients with that. So they're not good, robust, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials with like robust statistical evidence. It's like case series of like 20 patients with this. Uh, so a lot of it's like anecdotal. And to some extent, and for some things, it does work pretty well. Tennis up is one of them. And then, but other times they would look at it and there was a study of Achilles tendinopathy where they compared PRP to placebo. But in the study, placebo was they were injecting saline into the Achilles tendon. And modified prolo. It's right, right prolo. exactly. Well, almost, yeah. Prolo is like a little bit more concentrated, so it's like like either hypertonic saline or with dextrose to cause an osmotic effect. Yeah. But but yeah. but even separate from that, yeah. sticking a needle and injecting any fluid into a tendon isn't a placebo. Like that's a treatment. That's like a needling, like a or needle tommy. So like sure. they were comparing it to that, and it didn't do statistically better than the needling thing. And so like the interpretation of the study was, oh, PRP doesn't work. I'm like, well, you know what I mean. Tells me that PRP works kind of as much as the needle tonotomy, <laughs> right, which it right. does. But um, but so it can be helpful uh, in that regards because like you you see these things when you do uh, when you treat chronic tenopathy, a lot of times uh, at least myself and but many other providers that do PRP will do it with ultrasound guidance. So we're visualizing the tendons. So we see where the needle is. We know where we're going. We're not wasting it and putting it where it doesn't belong. But when you inject into a tendon that's chronic tendon damage, you'll see these like sort of these like micro tears open up. So it's kind of like uh, the phone book. Back when that was a thing, um, was Ross old enough we, to know what a phone book is? I'm older than Mike. Ross is older than me. Oh, she's all right. I know. You look younger. Huh? <laughs> it's because I shaved yesterday. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like it's got those thin pages. And if you kind of like blow into it, it'll like fluff up the pages. So, like, you can have like small partial tears, like laying flat. You don't see it on the ultrasound. You might not even see it on MRI, but you inject a little fluid in there and the fluid will find its way. Uh, and it'll sort of hydro dissect. It'll go sort of through the nooks and crannies, find the path of least resistance. And it'll sort of open up these spaces that were otherwise laying flat. So, it's like, a bag of chips that's empty and it goes in there and sort of puffs some air in there or fluid in this case, but basically, and then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, Oh crap, there's like a partial tear right there. So, um, and then you can like needle through it and break it up. Cause like those, it's kind of like a bag of chips and that like, you know, the edges get sort of sealed off a bit. And so it can lay there, but it doesn't quite seal closed. So you can needle through it and you can do a needle tenotomy to get the tendon to heal. That works pretty well. Um, but the PRP is basically stimulating it. I, the way I do it, I needle a little bit through the tendon while I'm injecting the PRP. So it's a little bit of both. Um, I think if you just drop the PRP by itself and don't do anything else. Like it probably won't, wouldn't be as effective, but with the PRP, yeah, you can get similar results with the needle tsunami, but you got to needle the crap out of it. And it's like some of these things, like you really want to be needling the heck out of an Achilles tendon. Like not really. I just want to needle a little bit and then put some other stuff in there to stimulate the heel. So I think it works pretty well for that. The studies are actually mixed for uh, Achilles tendinopathy. Some do show it works. Some doesn't. Um, I, some of that might be the selection bias. Um, I think it does not work very well for insertional Achilles tendinopathy. So like mm -hmm. the on the calcaneus, especially if they got those like big spurs coming off the bottom, those traction yep. adhesivites. Uh, I don't know that much of anything helps those except 
cutting them. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, but the mid tendon Achilles tendonitis works great. That's a great uh, explanation. Yeah, that was really uh, helpful. It was great, super. Yeah. Like I mean, you got down to the cytokines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's cool. And so, great. so, but but the thing too is, it's not a quick fix. It's not like you know you're trying to get something to heal on a cellular level. So just as if you cut it in surgery, you can sew it back together, but you need to wait for that incision to fully grow closed you can't just rely on just the sutures to hold everything together so like there's a certain amount of time so it takes like six to eight weeks to see the results of prp so it takes a while when you do it you are damaging a little bit of tissue and it is causing a bit of inflammatory response so it does actually hurt more for a few days after the prp um so that you always have to warn the patients that part of how it works is increasing inflammation to increase blood flow to the area so you don't want them to take any anti-inflammatories right before or right after. So I usually tell my patients stay off NSAIDs uh, for like five days before through a month after. So that's your leaves, ibuprofens, aspirins, things like that. They can take Tylenol, that won't affect it. Um, and sometimes we give them like other pain medicine that's not an anti-inflammatory to take after the procedure. But generally speaking, it's like a couple days that's worse. Um, but it takes a while to work. But back to the uh, sidetrack I had earlier of the money involved, like, you know, there isn't big funding in it. So there's not huge robust trials. So we don't have... FDA indication for it for a lot of things. So it's not a FDA approved for certain things. And now some of the devices might be FDA approved to produce PRP. And there are some um, coming up indications. I think just recently they got approved for healing ulcers in diabetic feet because there's not enough uh, blood supply in a diabetic foot. So, you know, down the road it might come, but there's not great data to be able to say, oh yeah, it works ton. It works great. So a lot of the times it's been like, you know, the sort of the treatment of last resort. It's like, all right, well, we tried everything else. Well, let's try some BRP. So since it's not FDA approved, it's not covered by insurance. When it's not covered by insurance, it starts to get pretty expensive. So it's usually hundreds of dollars to do the procedure because to do it well and legally, um, you know, if it's, considered experimental by their insurance, then it doesn't cover the injection. But if it's, uh, there's certain things that are like not covered, but they're just like not covered. But PRP by some insurances such as Medicare, it's not only just not covered, it's specifically excluded. Like they'll state, we do not cover this thing. So therefore like anything involved with it, they shouldn't really cover either. Like some people would be like, oh, well, I'll have the patient pay for the PRP kit, but we'll bill the insurance for the injection. But if the whole point of the injection is to do the PRP, it's not really kosher to do it that way. Um, so then sense. it's like more stuff that the patient has to pay for. So it can be more expensive. So like if it was covered, I think it would take off a lot because I think one of the biggest barriers to it is the price. Cost. And, you know, PRP sort of grew out of the trying to get things to heal themselves, which originally started with some of the prolotherapy. And then from the PRP, then stem cells have even taken off more as a part of it. Um, that's a whole other conversation. One thing though, just about the stem cells, which I do think can have a role, but I just want to make sure people understand there's a big difference. If you go the whole stem cell route, which is another conversation between your own stem cells and somebody else's stem cells going in you. So like they can get autologous stem cells. So I can stick a needle in your pelvis and suck out some bone marrow or a catheter into subcutaneous fat, kind of emulsify some of the fat to free up some mesenchymal stem cells and then inject those where I want it. And then those are live stem cells that not only do they have all the growth factors of PRP, but like theoretically can even sort of differentiate and sort of fill some more of the gap. And it's pretty cool stuff, you know, borderline science fiction, but like it's some stuff that we're able to do now, but like anything, if something works pretty well, it's like, Oh, maybe I can do something kind of similar. So there are some places that where they'll do, they'll offer stem cell therapy, but it's not your own blood or your own stem cells at that time. 
Um, they'll get like uh, umbilical cord stumps or samples or like a uh, placental like um, pieces where, you know, it's normal, like uh, women who've had all their prenatal screening, they've given birth at normal birth. They basically, you know, after they, you know, cut the cord and, you know, dad cuts the cord or mom or whoever or friend, uh, they cut the cord, they, you know, toss it. So, but they ask some of these women like, oh, we donate that. Can we take that and use that? So they can then take, there are fetal stem cells. Well, they're not fetus now, they're newborn because they've been born. So there's like newborn stem cells in the umbilical cord when they clamp it. But if it's in a labor and delivery room and they clamp the cord and cut it, then they have to like clean it and sterilize it and wash it and preserve it and store it. And then they figure out some guy up in Philadelphia or wherever and wants to try it. So they have to then ship it there. And it comes either as like this sort of gelatinous stuff or even as like a desiccated powder that you then kind of reconstitute with saline to then inject it in. So in the delivery room, there were live stem cells in that thing. But like by the time you go through all those steps and then reconstitute and then inject it in the patient, if you stain that stuff looking for live cells, they're not live anymore. They're dead stem cells. So it still has lots of growth factors and still can be somewhat helpful. But I think it's a little disingenuous calling that stem cell therapy therapy. because like they're also like, and that's usually like whether it's your own stem cells or the allergenic, somebody else's stem cells, it's usually thousands of dollars. And these people are often desperate because they've tried everything. And so they're willing to pay everything, anything under the sun to make themselves feel better, to get back to their sport or their hobby or, or even just to get pain-free. So some of these people are desperate and will pay thousands of dollars for dead stem cells. And I think that that's not really where we should be heading as a profession. Go ahead, Ross. No, I, I, I was, you go ahead. That was a phenomenal explanation. I agree. Uh, excellent explanation. In the end, it's a, there's a structural issue, deformity of some type that needs to be addressed. Here's a question for you. And we'll, and we're using, we're using cells, mm-hmm. uh, and the stem cell example and in, in PRP, mm-hmm. um, to address the, uh, well, those cells will diversify and change into what we needed to, to fix the structural deformity. Yeah. Right. So is there an image that you prefer? Uh, like, let's say there's a candidate out there, a patient thinks they're a candidate and they say, okay, do I need an MRI? Do I need an ultrasound? How do you know that I'm a candidate? Right. And that, Right. I, you um, and I kind of know yeah, where this is yeah. going, but no, I think I it's important to ask that. Yeah. So it, it, it depends on what the condition is. Um, I mean, I think that, do you need, need imaging for some of the things? I mean, tennis elbow is pretty obvious. I don't know that you necessarily need imaging for a tennis elbow to be able to do this stuff. Cause it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, if they've got pain with resisted wrist extension and pain with resisted long finger extension, uh, my old colleague, that, uh, my uh, old mentor, Dr. Kleena, would call the Philadelphia turn signal test because they would <laughs> use their middle finger to signify their turning lanes. I like that. Um, so that, you know, they have pain with those things. They're tender on the lateral upper out like it's tennis elbow. It's like, yeah, you could do an ultrasound or an MRI to see if there's a pretty significant tear. But if they have said, all right, like I'm not having surgery, like I want to try something else, like you could try it without that. But like, yeah, usually you want some sort of imaging unless you're like really confident in the diagnosis. Um, but it's interesting too, because like, you know, while they can certainly help heal some things like tendon issues and they can even be helpful in arthritis. Um, you know, one of the things where PRP first became kind of started to get like a little bit more like known in the general community was, uh, the Steelers in the uh, Super Bowl with Heinz Ward, uh, had an MCL tear in the AFC championship, got PRP treatment, uh, right before the Super Bowl, played in the Super Bowl, um, played decently. He was not at hundred percent, but he played pretty well. And I mean, the fact that he was, yeah, they won. And like, you know, you play in this freaking Super Bowl, like Heinz Ward at 80% is still better than most other people. And it's like, you know, it's, was amazing. 
because it was two weeks after an MCL sprain. So it was pretty impressive. And like, that was like, I think that was like when I was a fellow or was in mid 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of when it kind of first started getting out there. Um, and then there was interesting, like, you know, and some people will do, will go elsewhere for it. There are places like in Europe that do it as well. Um, there, uh, there was a bit of a brouhaha a while back with some of the, uh, golfers and some of the other pro athletes going to Europe to get it. Kobe, um, Kobe went, went to Germany to, to get some kind of PRP, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny because there was even, I remember, uh, a friend of mine sent me a link to, it was like, I think it was like. Cow, Colin Cowherd with like a round their horn or cow horn. Um, yeah. And he's like, uh, you know, all these athletes like going to Germany. And it was funny because at the time, he, even in his thing, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, Tiger Woods went to Germany to get this PRP for his elbow. And he's like, you know, he's like, but if you just Google it, you can see here, there's like people that do it in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. And that was me and Kevin Walsh at the time <laughs> that were doing it. And I was like, that's kind of funny. But he's like, yeah, you Google it. You just do here, do here. There's a Philadelphia, there's New York, there's all these places. So like, like, why do they have to go to Germany? Um, so then it's like, well, Maybe they put other stuff in there as well that helps augment healing that may or may not be as acceptable by certain standards. Maybe. Standards, yeah. Here, yeah. But what age group do you see this in? Do you see that the greatest benefit from from this? So it it's a good question because I you know the whether um, the younger the patient, the more robust of a response they get. So like, you know, I have occasionally, but not often done it in teens uh, and, and fair amount in college level. And, but even young adults, twenties, thirties, like they get a pretty good response and like they'll, they'll be pretty sore. I've had other, sometimes I've had people in their eighties that really want to do it. And sometimes they do great. And sometimes they don't, because like, sometimes I wonder if like, you know, if your platelets are 80 years old, I don't know how robust those are. Um, so that can be part of it. And then but also too, you have to make sure that you're managing the expectations. I've seen patients that come in and they are like completely bone on bone knee arthritis, like no space at all in their joint at all on an x-ray, on a weight bearing x-ray. And they'll be like, oh yeah, I heard PRP can regrow some cartilage. Can you inject that in my knee, regrow my cartilage? I'm like, um, I can. I don't know if it's really going to get what you think. Because like, yeah, if you take cartilage cells in a Petri dish or like a lab bench and you put some PRP in there, you can get some division and some growth of cartilage. But if you put it in somebody's knee, and then they stand up and walk out of the exam room and put weight down on it. If they're like practically bone and bone before, it's going to just squeeze all that stuff out to like the recesses on the side. And you're not going to get cartilage to regrow in there. And you know, you can't like regrow an entire condyles worth of cartilage with these injections. It's just not going to work. Go ahead. I was just going to ask that. How often are patients able to get a PRP injection? Um, does it, well, you know, there, so, I mean, does it matter? what area they're getting it into? Is it a one-time, is it a one-time thing? So it-, it depends what you're, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. Like the biggest barrier is usually cost because it's usually a couple hundred dollars and not covered by insurance. Sure. Uh, sometimes a thousand or more. So part of it has, is a financial con- or restriction. Uh, the second one is like, it depends on what you're treating. So like if somebody's bone on bone, I'll tell them like, like, yeah, I can do it. I don't know if it's going to do a whole lot, but I can like, cause to some extent there's not much downside other than cost. Like if I'm sticking a needle in you and taking some of your blood and putting it back into you, like it's your blood. It's not like you're going to get like some weird infection from somebody else. Now, you know, years ago, there might be issues of like hepatitis transmission and blood donations, things like that. But that's all been so good at screening now. Like I don't think you ever hear that anymore, but like it's your own blood. So you're not going to be allergic to it. You're not going to catch something you don't already have. 
the downsides are the cost. There is a needle stick. So theoretically, you know, our skin is our biggest barrier to infection. So if you break the skin for any injection, theoretically, you can get an infection on top of that. Now, steroid shots would actually have a slightly higher risk of infection because like the steroid can slightly depress the immune response locally. And the PRP like actually has some white cells in it. So if anything, it'll be like less likely to get an infection than the steroid shot. So like, yeah, you could get an infection, but it's pretty rare. And, you know, you, but you also, you want to be careful what you're injecting. There were some doctors down in Florida that got in big trouble because they were trying to inject uh, in the eye for like retinal bleeding and trying to do like uh, stem cell injections in the eye and cause some blindness. And like, Sheesh. yeah, it's like, dude, what? I mean, like, let's not forget like basic common sense. Like <laughs> we shouldn't be. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I so like, want to be on the table for nope. that. Yeah, exactly. So like, uh, but they were arrested. Uh, <laughs> they had their clinic shut down. Um, anyway, so there, you know, you can do it for a lot of different things, but of a patient, like if, if we're going to take a, you know, middle-aged patient with a tendinopathy um, or arthritis that we think might benefit from it. And we do it like if they're going to do more, like sometimes one might be enough to get them where they want to be. It might not be a hundred percent pain relief, but it might be significantly improved. And what I'll often quote to my patients, and this is sort of anecdotal, this is not based on studies. Don't quote me on this, but basically typically what I see is about 70% of patients will get at least some benefit. They'll get like 50% better. Um, and, but that includes that 70%, but, and that includes of those, like, of so about 50% total of my patients will get probably about 70% better. So like, a, you know, half do decent, some do great and have no pain. Some have some improvement. Very rarely do I ever have anybody get worse. I've had one knee with a partial meniscus tear. She really did not want to get surgery. And I've definitely had some good success with partial, like sort of degenerative type meniscal tears before with BRP. But there's this one patient where as we were injecting it, like I think the injection itself, like sort of it was kind of getting into the nooks and crannies of the tear and sort of like made it worse, like dissected the tear even more and her tear got worse and she ended up needing to get surgery. And so that was unfortunate, you know, but, um, but generally speaking, it seems to like at least not hurt. And for most people, they get some benefit and some people get a lot of benefit. You're going to do it again. Say you're going to like stage it. Like if you think it might need two or three treatments, we usually space them about like three months apart. Yeah, give or yeah. sake. Cause there's a certain like healing cascade of like sure. when the different cell lines come in to heal. So if that's the question, which I think it probably was, and I went that long way to get there. <laughs> All good. Um, All good information. You know, about three months apart is when we typically space them. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's not what I was going to say was, and you kind of nailed it with that. It's not, it's not five, six, seven, eight injections. Typically one, one, two, three, something like that. It depends typically. over what course of time, right? That being said, some of the peer, it depends a bit on how you calculate the number because some of the PRP systems, um, like there's an ACP system, uh, where it's a smaller blood draw each time and it, produces smaller yields of platelets each time. Yeah. So like that one you do like two or three times, but like, it's sort of like one treatment is really like kind of like two or three injections spaced a couple of weeks apart. Um, so yeah. So, but like, so that person, if they're getting like two series of PRP might've sure. had six shots total, but uh, I don't use that system. From a PT perspective, is there something that you would want PTs to know who are seeing? Yeah, I, I've seen patients who have gone back to their doctor for a PRP injection, come back to PT. Is there something that you would want to relay to the PT or PTs out there that about approach, what yeah. to think about? Um, so I think it can be like uh, a good augmentation to 
like they're, you know, like I still think we should start with the, like, I don't think everybody should jump to PRP for their tennis elbow the first time out. I still think you should do all their usual stuff first. But like if they're doing PT and they're not making progress, like I'll usually have had them fail PT before I even go the PRP route. I don't jump to it right away. Um, and, but so I also tell them like, okay, so we're trying to get this tendon to heal or like this ligament to tighten up or whatever. We're like, we're trying to sort of stimulate healing on a cellular level. So, you know, if it's chronic tendinopathy and there's like junk, like bundled up tendon in there, like we need those fibers to sort of heal in the right plane in the right direction. So I usually would like do the PRP, have them take like two weeks off a PT. Cause I want that sort of first initial five to seven days where it's more painful. Like I don't want to send them a PT then they'll like punch you. And then, uh, you see, so let that kind of calm down and you let it sort of start to heal. But then I do want them back in PT. I want them getting like, so, you know, whatever flavor of IASTM, I believe we call it now. Like grass yeah, soft tissue mobilization. Yeah. Trademarks uh, to appropriate whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, you, we want those tendons to heal. So like you got to get in there with your thumb, with a metal, something with a snapple cap, um, whatever works for you to sort of get some like pressure on that muscle. Uh, we want them to do some eccentrics. We want them to work on range of motion. We want to strengthen everything around it. So it's, it's similar to like any of the other stuff. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think it's important yeah. to mention that it, uh, th- there's a reason that tendon has fa- failed to an extent. I mean, it failed, not the right word, but has gotten to the point it is uh, yeah. where, where it's at that required pro, uh, you know, PRP. Therefore, we have to strengthen everything around it. Right? Yeah, we got to yeah, stabilize yeah. it, like you said. So uh, so an elbow, mm-hmm. you, like research already says, like we may, make sure we got to mobilize the T-spine, make sure mm-hmm. that's a focus, but stabilization yeah. of, of, of the shoulder. shoulder right? and, yeah. and obviously you're going to isolate, you're going to do eccentrics, you're going to do your soft tissue mobilization mm-hmm. techniques, but it's also important to minimize the stress that was put through that mechanically. That way it doesn't happen again. There's actually a great example of something that ties together everything that we talked about tonight is um, the chronic ankle sprains. One of the things I think PRP works great for, at least in my personal experience with my patients anecdotally, I've had very good success with sort of the chronic ankle sprain where they've got that sort of functional instability. They've rolled it a few times. They've stretched out their ATFL. Uh, maybe there's a partial tear, maybe there's a full tear or whatever, but things are loose. They keep rolling it all the time. Maybe it's not enough glute medius from above. Maybe they don't have enough strength or balance or proprioception, all the stuff that like PT can often help with. And then they get either just chronic ankle pain or sprains. And then, but even too, a lot of times I'll see chronic perineal tendinopathy of their perineus trying to like substitute for the lack of the ATFL. It's working as a dynamic stabilizer since the static stabilizer is gone. So the perineus brevis is like constantly tugging. Like at, are you at the fifth met or are you talking? More well, like anywhere that? from like lateral mile down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll otherwise be considering like big ankle ligament reconstruction surgery. Sure. And I've had quite a few PTs send me patients and you know, for this, where for this, I think PERP works great because it's not perineal tendinopathy just because it's perineal tendinopathy because it's making up for the ATFL, which is deficient, which is partially because of damage, partially because of tears. Uh, they never rehabbed it well in the first place. So they don't have the balance and proprioception, so they keep rolling it, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, you can reconstruct the ligaments. You can, and, you know, release the tendon of the perineus, uh, longus, or brevis. Um, but, like, if you tighten up the ankle, a lot of this goes away. So, what I do is for these ones, I, we do like, Again, they've already tried PT, maybe brace, maybe boot, other things. They might have even had like steroid shots in the perineal brevis or longus or uh, in the ankle joint. So you inject PRP into the ankle joint, like directly in the joint and in the ATFL. And if they have like a bit of a chronic high ankle sprain, maybe even a little like uh, anterior tip fib, yep. throw them in a boot for like a week or two. Then I get them in like a 
pretty like sort of substantial sports type race, like the ankle stabilizing type. My personal favorite being the Bledsoe Raptor. I'm not paid by them, although I guess they're break now. Um, just because they got this nice little foam pad well, thing on the bottom. They're week. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, uh, so they use that, and then I have to get them back into PT. But like, but I, but for a couple of weeks, I want everything to just sort of tighten up around there because their ankle's just been too loose for too long. And if you do it that, and then like, you know, they come out of the boot, they go on the sports brace, then they get back into PT, they work on the balance, they work on the proprioception so they don't keep rolling it. They work on the strengthening to sort of stabilize them, and like, they do great. Wow. And it saves them a surgery. Awesome. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I, I love, Chronic I, ankle sprains, it's actually one of the things I'm like, I think it works really well for. Like that, tennis elbow, MCL sprains, either acute or chronic, uh, the knee. I haven't been impressed for rotator cuff. Some of my colleagues say that they can work magic on a partial tear rotator cuff, but I just, rotator cuff's hard because like if you're injecting that tendon, there's this fine line between like you like, move it too much and it's like not really going to help or versus immobilize them too much. They get a frozen shoulder. Um, I found it decent for the chronic, like sort of mild instabilities, like not the full on. I dislocate when I, every time I sneeze, but like the, I sublux frequently, it can tighten those up pretty well. It can help sometimes with like glenoid labral tears. It can help sometimes with acetabular labral tears. I've even had patients do well with knee arthritis and hip arthritis. There was actually a study not that long ago of PRP versus uh, visco injections sure. versus steroid. And it found that the steroid, you know, all three of them helped alleviate pain in the early phase. The steroid worked fastest, which would make sense because it's a steroid. It's like the visco takes a little time. So does the PRP to work. Um, but at like three months and six months, the visco and the PRP outperformed the steroid. And at, uh, beyond six months, the PRP actually did better than the Visco. Uh, so it's sort of interesting. So like, you know, I've had some decent success with it for knee arthritis, for hip arthritis, um, things like that. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, modality. But again, some of my colleagues then say, oh, well, let's PRP everything. Right. You know, right especially sure. when it's like, oh, it's cash. We'll PRP this and PRP that. And it's like, okay, well, maybe we're getting a little overboard here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love the idea. I think it's, mm -hmm. it's got a ton of value. Um, all right, I, that's that was fantastic. Thank yeah, you. Awesome. Like, you got thank no, you. Yeah. Serious, you got no. Like I, I don't know if I've ever like stopped and said like thank you for explaining that so well. I'm serious. That was uh, uh, nitty gritty, but like your analogies are second to none. Thanks. Uh, so uh, all right, let's let's hit this uh, hit these these fat the fast five, and I obviously jump in on this too, Ross. Um, Some people would say I might not be capable of giving fast answers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> as right, as yeah. I've obviously demonstrated. <laughs> all right, one thing athletes are doing wrong in their training. Well. Not enough uh, attention to the glute med. Uh, too much of this sort of all straight ahead movements. Love it. I would say, you know, not training like athletes. So you, you lift, how often do we lift and nobody ends up getting on stage for bodybuilding competition, but we all participate in recreation. Athletes do. Got to train like an athlete. How often do we jump? How often do we cut? Things like that. Jordan does this with his athletes. He does um, a sprint, uh, jump, and throw. Uh, like that, that's, that's what he starts every program with, whether you're an Irish dancer or whether you're a, a hockey goalie, like everybody, everybody does that. And overhand he, throw. So it can be, usually it's or like a rotational, like, oh, like throw, yeah, yeah, a med ball, like throw, it's like yeah, a yeah. med ball, like power, slam, some type yeah, of power yeah. developer. Yeah. Oh, nice. and, 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 so I wouldn't say, yeah, if anything, I've never seen an overhead throw, 
But yeah, it's, all, it's like, like, like that's so unnatural to the body. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it could be even like a lo- like an underthrow or a low throw or but like mm-hmm. with a plyometric, oh, etc. Cool. But like it's but everyone does athletic movements. Yeah. I think we get too specific with our training too. Like, oh, we need to do all rotational work because I got a baseball player, a mm-hmm. lacrosse player, or what yeah. have you. So I think it's important to like train the overall athlete. What's the number one thing we should be doing to mitigate the risk of injury? Uh-huh. Be mindful of how much. Uh, time we're doing the same thing. Um, so there've been some studies came out a couple of years ago and I've been backed up with other studies that like, I'm seeing a ton of teenagers with like overuse injuries with like hand, nagging hamstring strains and like t- rotator cuff tonight, things like that. Like things that teenagers didn't used to get. And you know, they're going from like their school swim team practice to their club team practice, or they're or like going from swim practice to lacrosse practice, or, you know, they're just doing like too much all like all year round. And so there was, you know, part of it is this sort of over push for sports specialization, which was big a while back, but now we're finding sports sports specialization in one sport year round does not help get you into actual, like, you know, people will get better, but then they burn out and get injured. So like it doesn't, act, so like it might still help get people looked at, but them actually making it into the college for that sport uh, doesn't work. Um, the other one is, the just general overuse. So one of the things that they found was hours per week, more than their age. So 12 year old doing sports more than 12 hours per week. Wow. Like um, injury rate goes up significantly. The other one is like months per year. So at 10 months a year of the same sport, injury rate starts to go up at more 11 months or more. It's a J curve. It takes off like a rocket. So it's like those kids where like they get two weeks off in the summer from travel soccer and maybe two weeks off in the winter, you know, they get hurt more. I mean, I just, yeah. Like I, I see a lot of kids with like, you know, back in my day when we played soccer, it was like school soccer in the fall and travel soccer in the spring. And you know, now it's like, you know, the soccer year round, like all the time. And they're doing travel soccer outdoors when it's 20 degrees out and that ball is hard as a rock. And you know, they warm up some ahead of time, but then, you know, if they're not in, if they're on the sideline for a bit, like it's freaking freezing outside, their muscles get tight and cold. And you know, it's, like, I just, I feel like we're pushing these kids way too hard. Like, you know, they're 10 and you know, 12 and playing year round and like not great weather, at least in the Northeast. We'll see. But like, uh, yep. yeah, it's just, I mean, sometimes kids got to be kids and not constantly play sports. Well said. I was going to say managing training volume and just variety of training, right? Like, just like, just like BJ said, well, you know, why, why are we throwing them in? 10, 11, 12 months a year of training the same for the same sport. And by training, I mean playing the same sport, right? Yeah. And it's tough too, because it is sort of a self-perpetuating cycle because it's like, you know, it's gotten to be that the travel teams start younger and younger. And so the kids start the travel teams younger and younger. And I mean, we had this with my son, he's 10 and like, you know, he did um, karate for a while and then leading up to the pandemic. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, we don't want to be doing karate in like closed environments. So you start looking at like doing like soccer and sports outside. And it's like, you know, at like nine, it's like so hard to start new into a sport because like you've got kids that have been playing it for like six years, even at like nine or at like 10 years old, they've already been playing it. So it's like, you know, you couldn't like, it's like you almost have to go straight to travel. And it's like, so there's constantly sports and I don't know if it's because everyone's trying to keep their kids busy and keep them doing stuff. And, you know, I certainly get that like, you know, but then also too, it's like, there's so many different travel teams and it's like, Oh, 
you know, travel team A is like offering year round. So travel team B is like, oh, some of our kids left halfway through because we're only like eight months a year and the parents think they're getting more there. So like they're leaving. So we got to start doing 10 months a year also. And, you know, next thing you know, it's like everybody's just doing way too much. The analogy, um, uh, not analogy, but the comparison for me, that's most simple is baseball. So in baseball, you have your spring league, right? Mm-hmm. And if I played Little League, I'm sure you guys played Little League. If you were really good, you played on the All-Star team, and that lasted maybe a month, and you had your summer. As fall ball started to become more popular as I got older. And if you wanted to be, like, if you wanted to make the team next year, you should play on the fall ball team. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, play in the off season, so you're ready to go next year. Yeah. And it started at a younger and younger and younger age. And now Little League baseball, with the general pop, like, you don't have to, try out for the team meaning uh by general pop that is like gone now yeah like 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 little league yeah, baseball it's, or, or it's like, like there only until age like eight or right, exactly like, like the, then you're doing tryouts th- there are special specialty like travel teams that start at like nine ten eleven yeah. years old and there's multiple of them and it's all year round i got we have kids who are nine ten years old with pitching coaches yeah. at nine ten years old so the stat you're right is 10 times more likely to have an elbow or shoulder injury at if you're throwing 10, 10 months out of the year, yeah, 10 plus months out of the year, yeah. 10 times more likely. Now, you guys nailed it. I think at the grand slam, should insurance cover the use of PRP? Uh, I, I would be a strong advocate for insurance covering appropriate use of PRP. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah, if, if I think, if I think supported it's by research, yes, well, supported by research, and it's hard because in, in sports medicine, some of our research is crap, uh, quality wise, because it's a hard thing to study. You know, uh, my wife, she's an internist. They can study, you know, blood pressure medicine. You give a, a thousand patients blood pressure medicine. You see a literal number their their blood pressure is and what does it go down to? And it's easier to prove statistically. But in this stuff, it's like, what's your pain score? Or one out of 10 or, or the visual analog score. Where do you write, like circle the number on this like scale of what your pain is. And I mean, everybody's pain is subjective and it's different. And like, I mean, I guess if at least in that scenario with the scales, like if you're comparing that person to that person's own self rating, that's one thing, but like so much of the data points that we're looking at is like vague, you know, sure. without a doubt. I mean, it's, so it's it goes, hard in PT. Absolutely. It, but pain cannot be the only indicator of improvement. Right. You know, it, it should be some functional outcome measures yeah. of some kind. Um, and I get like yeah. that, you know, yeah. So like maybe they do have to like have already tried like PT or uh, oral medicines or injections or something right. else first. Like I don't necessarily think it should be first line. It's like getting but, an MRI. Like you got to get your x-ray first yeah, type thing. Yeah. Okay. Any, any t- I mean, I, 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 I support what he says. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, like most, most common injury seen in uh, rotational athletes. Uh, would you like to start? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why don't you take this one, bro? What sports are we talking about more specifically? Do you have anything specific? Um, in mind? I think I think. Uh, I mean, we're uh, talking like figure skating. Even I would say. I know, well, that's fair. I would say anything that like uh, field hockey, lacrosse, hockey, mm-hmm. baseball. Uh, I'm going to go back to to part one. Um, Lumbo pelvic injury, and a lot of it will ultimately come down to poor recruitment, poor stability, poor endurance with some form of the glute area. I've converted him. <laughs> oh, I was a believer before. Well, I mean, I think you, you yeah. uh, converted me at a young age and, yeah. uh, and Ross and I, we would nerd out all the time. Yeah. Oh, we're yeah. like, all right, you got 10 minutes. Look, look, yeah. What do you think of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of the clinic, we'd just be being nerds. So if I can so. break it down by sport a little bit more though, like, um, Fair. you know, Fair. uh, well, first of all, getting away from rotational, like, you know, Runners, like cross country things, it's the usual shin splints, uh, T-band, uh, that kind of stuff. But like a lot of the rotational stuff, I would say 
I mean, in the baseball players, it's a ton of shoulder stuff. Um, in the field hockey players, it tends to be knees and hips. And I think a lot of it too is like, yeah, a lot of it has to do with either like too much or not enough of certain things, like not enough glutes, but, or maybe, maybe they could have rock solid glutes, but like, they're just exhausted between schoolwork and homework and their part-time job plus going to practice and everything else. Like they're just, yeah, their bodies are spent. I love that. I, I, I completely agree. I, I would, I expected, especially from you, BJ, not to get like a straight answer. Like, oh, that's yeah. right. <laughs> like, like not, not going to happen, but uh, fair. I think all, all great points. Most common injury seen amongst field sport athletes. So your soccer, your football, you're more cutting and, and running, change of direction. Ankle. I would count basketball on that too. Okay. I mean, ankle is a big one with the cutting and pivoting. Uh, ankles, then knees. Not quite as much of the hip stuff. Um, although, but again, back to the uh, overuse and everything else, like I'm seeing a lot of like just nagging hamstring strains and calf strains and things and, you know, quad strains, things like that. I could, you know, just, I don't want to open the concussion can of worms too much, but like, that's, a great that's, that's where I was going. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm a big proponent that I believe that uh, women's lacrosse should wear helmets. I think that the eye gear is stupid. It doesn't do anything. Maybe it protects like a globe injury of the eye. Do you see a lot of concussions for female lacrosse? I do. Um, and in fact, one of the local high schools did for a while institute, like they required that their whole team wear helmets. And they had zero concussions in three years that they had the helmets. Wow. And a bunch of concussions before. And then when the coaches changed, they weren't doing the helmets anymore. A bunch of concussions after. And invariably, I would see, in the, like in lacrosse, they would get hit with a ball or stick right above the goggles or right below the goggles or things like that. And, you know, the, the people that are against it, they'll say, well, if you, give the, if you give the women helmets, then it basically turns into men's game and they'll be checking. It's like, no, you can still have the same rules. You can still blow the whistle for like various things and pause. Like they don't have to check, but like so many of the concussions, like, yeah, in, in women's lacrosse, it's not from the checking because they don't have the checking, but it's from getting hit. It's like, you know, if you're, that ball is freaking hard and some of those women <laughs> yeah. are strong and can whip that thing so fast. It's like, why would you not want to protect your head with that? But uh, that's a separate issue. I'm with you. <laughs> I was, I would say, I was going down the concussion, the concussion. I wouldn't say it's like the majority. Of no, what no, I would not see. the majority. Absolutely no, not. But, but, but it's concerning. Definitely concerning. Um, I would say more foot, ankle, yeah. and then and then knee. Maybe a handful of like just low back, hip, but not not for the same reasons. Just maybe because of either fatigue or you know. Um, just yeah. because our entire life is in front of us. So we lose out on, on getting into any type of extended position and, and, and they're, you know, student athletes. So they're sitting the majority of the day. They're not training, but I would say, you know, lower quarter foot, ankle, knee. Yeah. All right. Last one. The great, great answers. I'm thrilled. You said concussion. Cause that, that's, nice. uh, that, I mean, um, yeah, I obviously, you know, I feel about it. You, you listen to the podcast with, with Eck and uh, yeah. Keenan. All right. So last question, what's the most common injury you've seen since COVID? Oh, so COVID was very interesting from an injury standpoint. Again, it's funny that you tr attempt a lightning round with me. I'm incapable of short <laughs> answers. Um, so it was funny because in the beginning of COVID, there was nothing. Nobody was leaving their house. There was no sports. Everything was closed. There weren't even car accidents because nobody was driving to work. Like there was nothing. Like we literally were sitting around twilling our thumbs. So we got the weirdest things. We would get people like office workers who normally are working like 
50, 60 hours a week in their office. Now all of a sudden they got all this free time because they don't have a long commute anymore. So they're walking the neighborhood like two or three times a day and tons of like metatarsal, like metatarsalgia, plantar fasciitis, metatarsal stress fractures, things like that, shin stuff from like all this walking. Or it's like, okay, I've been stuck in my house for two months and I realized I don't like the walls yellow anymore. So I painted the entire downstairs in a weekend. It's like, and now my, I can't raise my arm <laughs> over my head. It's like, well, yeah, it's a cute rotator cuff. So in the early, early, early parts of COVID, it was that sort of the weird, like just people doing stuff, people doing stuff they don't normally do. And in, in fact, uh, one of my partners, Dr. Arwood, his wife is a veterinarian. And she was saying in the beginning, she was getting mad because like people bring, like bring in their dog who was like limping or complaining. And it's like, well, yeah, because like your dog used to be let out like in the morning and then you'd walk him once in the evening. It's like now you're walking your dog three times a day. So now your dog is getting overuse injuries. Um, <laughs> but then, That's but then I never this, thought about that. This spring, spring of 2021, one of these days I should try and pull up the numbers, but I swear I saw more stress fractures in March and April of 2021 than any two month period ever in my life. Um, so many stress fractures because these kids were like, these are the kids where they had missed the whole like year previous with COVID. And then they started back into some stuff in the fall, but then things sort of shut down again. And then like they sort of opened back up again, you know, vaccines were starting to roll out. And in like the fall of 20, you know, they were doing like, oh, we're only doing a couple practices and maybe five games against just the local schools. We're not doing like the full season. And so they were then finally like opening sports back up again. And so, so the people just hadn't been doing enough. And all of a sudden they're running a ton and just the stress fractures and the overuse injuries we saw in March and April were just off the charts. Interesting. How about, how about you? I didn't see as many, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, obviously, we, of yeah. course, but right. um, I'd yeah. say beginning of COVID middle, beginning to middle, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendon issues, glute, general hip glute pain. Uh, we won't go into what we call it. And, we will uh, always accept glute as in the answer <laughs> for, or one of the answers. Um, and then I actually started seeing a lot of patients. I'll, I'll just call them like sedentary injuries. I mean, you yeah. went from being able to, uh, you know, at least in the, I work in the Ardmore area and the very beginning of COVID, I was, I was in the city. You get people who are walking to work, who are taking a lunch break, who are working out during their lunch. Now yeah. their commute is outside of their bedroom to their, out, down their hall to their yeah. desk. So they're just, or down a flight of stairs and they're sitting for 12 hours a day because there's nothing else yeah. to do. And so sometimes it's neck pain and it's low back pain. And yeah. some, yeah. yeah, sometimes they're sitting longer because like, they don't have a commute. So like they can kind of keep working more exactly. or like, then they're streaming whatever it is on yeah. Netflix or Netflix like, realizes yeah. and Hulu and yeah. everything decides, Oh, well, you can put out some banging content yeah. right now and everyone's going to watch yeah. it because there's nothing else to do. So because I also saw too, along that same line of thought, um, a lot in like, so six to 12 months in was a lot of people where normally pre COVID like had an office, maybe had like a decent, like ergonomic setup, uh, a couple monitors, all that stuff. Yep. And then they spent like six months on their laptop at the kitchen table, like yeah. hunched over, like totally. you know, just rolled shoulders, rolled forward, protracted, and they get all this shoulder impingement, upper, upper neck and upper back and uh scapular stabilizer, all this stuff. I, I, you know, I, I agree with both of those. I saw a lot of low back and over, overuse, I think the interesting thing that you said was um, not only were they not doing the practices in regards to the stress fracture or not as much activity, they're not on their feet much. And we yeah. all know that to, they weren't, yeah. to generate, you know, to increase bone formation generals, um, you know, mineralization, you need a weight bear. You need well, to walk. And, you need to be active. And, That's and, not what wasn't happening because they were sitting doing totally. virtual. Yeah. And, and thinking about the kids at like some of the bigger high schools, 
Like if you had to like walk from one end of the high school to the other, like you're like sometimes walking fast in between classes. Like you're bo- like practically jogging like nine times a day, like in between classes. Sure. Like, and walking in from the, the bus or the parking lot or wherever it's like in like, yeah. And then their, their, their steps went from like, you know, 10,000 easily to like, 500. If they're like, love yeah, to get, like I'm sure fit, I'm sure that research yeah. is somewhere. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. It'd be like, like plummeted. You know what I mean? Yeah. It would be fast. And then there would be like spikes like day in, you know, day, yeah. you know, a few mm-hmm. times a week I would think, but, yeah. and that's how you, that's how you get a stress fracture. Yeah. Love it. Uh, but before we wrap up, can we get contact info? Uh, how can our listeners get, get in touch with you? Okay. Uh, I do participate in the socials a little bit. Uh, not super great at them, but uh, like with Twitter and Instagram, it's BJ Smith MD at BJ Smith MD for those emails, BJ Smith MD at Gmail. There's a website too that's still left over from my old practice, but uh, it's there too as well. But And, uh, and also at Rothman for like clinical stuff or uh, office uh, stuff. Uh, RothmanOrtho.com is our main website. And you're located in at the at Lankinall Hospital. In yeah, you're at Brim, uh, Brimar Hospital and in Brimar. Brimar. Yep, and, and we have an office out in Limerick in as Limerick. well, like out 422. Uh, yeah, so we have, and I mean, the practice generally we've got offices all over. We now even have offices in New York and Florida. I heard Florida. Yeah. yeah, dude, we have a bunch in Central Florida, like near Orlando. Um, so you like, do that seasonal, like go down there. Yeah, for winter I guess I got to figure that out. Yeah. Everyone else is doing it. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny too, because like, you know, we, I get some patients again, I can't give a short answer. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I, we would get patients that are like snowbirds, you know, and they'll be up here like in like, you know, warmer six months and then they go down to Florida. And sometimes we see them in the middle of the winter. Yep. I'm like, oh, dude, aren't you like in like Naples this time of year? And they're like, Oh we, yeah. But I come up every year and I see, I'm seeing you today. I'm seeing my cardiologist tomorrow, my ophthalmologist the next day. It's like, you know, they do all their doctor visits up here just to keep everything situated. I have a couple of yeah. people that are doing telehealth while they're down there. Are they? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, Oh, I'll be back next week just for the week though. Uh, so I'll come into the clinic next week if you're okay with that. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what do you, Something going on. Is everything okay? Yeah, yeah I'm coming up because I got to see my ortho. I got to see my like my cardiologist. I got to yeah. see all their doctors' yeah. appointments in mm-hmm. one week. Yeah, got to get my car inspected. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ross, contact them. Uh, yeah. So also on the socials, uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty quiet, but I'll I'll do a lot of reposting. Um, but on Instagram, it'll be uh, R and then my last name N A C H B I at R Nachby um, and uh, Ross dot Nachby at IVRehab.com for. Uh, for email and uh, all clinical stuff. Um, I think the IV, uh, IV and PTW websites are, are kind of revamping a little bit, uh, but you'll be able to find me on there shortly. All right. Awesome. I, uh, we can put that in the show notes. That's a wrap. Thank you. It's been great. Thank, Thank you for you having so us. much. This is uh, great. This is cool. Thank yeah. you guys. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the on cue performance therapy podcast. If you'd like this episode, please subscribe on Apple podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time.